Good morning. I'm glad you guys came to church today. You're very kind. It's great to see you all. Uh, what a great Christmas this is, you know? What a great Christmas. You know, sometimes when we come to church, um, uh, we uh, get all filled up, and then, uh, and then we think, what well, you know, this has got to last me for seven days. <laughs> so, you know, we, we come out of church and say, don't spill it, and don't hug me too much, because I need every drop I can get all the way through next Saturday, you know. I want to change that image for you a little bit, that um, the image is that our cup is already overflowing, and it's overflowing, and it's overflowing, because otherwise you, you have this idea that you're coming to God with this big honking mug, say, okay, give it to me, God, I've got this big mug, and he, he pours out this little pitcher, and uh, that's just the wrong, you don't have a big mug, all you are is a little thimble. <laughs> you, can, you can't contain the grace of God, can you? Can you contain the mercy of God? It's, it's going to over... And God doesn't come with a pitcher. He comes with a 25-gallon uh, fill-up-your-whole-tank kind of thing, you know, uh, because it's just overflowing. That's the life that we live. So I, I actually was experiencing that week. One of the things that blesses me is probably like you is being with friends and family, particularly at Christmas time. So my Christmas started out um, going down to Balboa Park and hearing my sons play down there in the organ pavilion. And, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm, they're my kids. They're my, they, I, I raised them. You know, I just, I, I'm proud of them. I love them, but not because of their success, but because they're who they are and, and that they've never listened to the press. You know, that they're just normal kids. And then uh, I thought, wow, I'm living it. This, that, my, my cup is overflowing. And then uh, Friday night, my grandson, Jet, and his band, Jetty, uh, are playing at Soma. Now, some of you are not into the rock world, so <laughs> bear with me. But, but Soma is this dirty, dark, iconic, uh, you know, uh, teenage club that... Uh, that my sons played at 30 years ago when they were like in high school. And they were this punk band, you know, I think called Etc. And, um, and, and so I'm listening to my grandson and I look over and there's my two sons and they're, and they're all listening and I think, this is like not even deja vu, this is voodage. <laughs> And the point is, I'm not, the point is not to brag about my kids, but the point is my cup was overflowing. I said, I'm living the dream. I, it's just, this is what I, uh, you know, when I gone on vacation with my son, John, he said, what's your, what's your goal for this vacation, dad? And I just smiled, kicking back. I said, I'm already doing it, dude. Um, it's being with you, watching you love your kids. That's, I'm living the dream. I, my cup is overflowing. So this sets the stage for us this morning. All you are is this little thimble. You will never, ever, 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 did I say ever, contain the grace of God. 
It just doesn't work that way. Because if we do, then we strut into church, big Bible, <laughs> glory to God. How you doing, Elder Ed? Praise the Lord. And we, we begin to magnify our mug and how big it is and why God should fill our mug. And we, we do this thing of trying to contain the grace of God, but can't be done. And in my journey, both as a, a pastor and a psychologist, I've asked the question, how do people change, significantly change? And first of all, can they? <laughs> that was the first question. But then secondly, how does it happen? And I've watched people, they can self-help change themselves a little bit, fix their temper a little bit, a little bit. But how do they significantly change? And I believe it happens with the spark of the mercy of God. Where you now, as a sinner, an undeserved, undeserving vessel, discover his great love for your little thimble. Lord, be with us today as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're in Luke 2, and I love this time of year because there, there is no greater illustration for the grace of God. Um, this infinite God that made his son finite, eternal God, crossed into this planet, born of a woman, stable, and if you, you know what a manger is, a feeding trough where animals drool, laid there, came into this nitty-gritty world for you and me. Wow. What a great setting for you and I to understand the mercy of God. So there's three parts to the message this morning. Pretty obvious, we're going to look at Mary's story and it collides with Elizabeth's story. Elizabeth's story started last week with Zachariah. What a phenomenal job Ryan did in unpacking that. So those two women are going to collide. Secondly, John and Jesus, the even bigger story, begins to happen. John the Baptist. And then finally, we're going to look at Mary's Magnificat. What in the world is Mary's Magnificat? and see how that applies to us today. So, beginning with Mary's collision with Elizabeth, we have this verse, 39, where it says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now, remember, Zechariah had his encounter last week, right? So he was a priest that was allowed to go into the temple and, and serve, and he met the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel said, even though your wife is old, she is now going to have a child. Now, I, 
I am not a woman, and I can't go into the biology of a woman, but I'm guessing that there's changes that happen by the time you're 60 or so that uh, would say that, you know, you cannot, you biologically cannot have a child. So Zachariah just said, no way, Jose. <laughs> it, it's just not going to happen. Um, and G Gabriel said, well, uh, it, it's disappointing to be you, Zachariah, because now you're going to be dumb until the child's born. You're done speaking. Now, that might be a real joy for Elizabeth. <laughs> you know, men make a lot of jokes about women talking too much, but, you know, I've been around some men, including myself, that it might be some peace and quiet for my wife if I didn't talk for months and months. And, and so that was the setting for Elizabeth. And, and, and so Mary has her encounter with the same angel. She does two things. One, she gets ready, and the second thing is she hurries to the town. She gathers up her stuff, and now she's going to go down to wherever Elizabeth lives. We only know that it's in the hill country of Judea. It might have been Bethlehem. It might have been Hebron or any of the other villages that are outside of Jerusalem. Like if you go to Bethlehem today, you can see uh, Jerusalem right there. It's like three miles away, just on that other hill. So it's not far away, all these little towns from each other. But she knows Elizabeth and she knows where Elizabeth lives and she knows what the angel has told her. If you look back at verse 36, the angel told Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is already in her sixth month. If you've ever been in, in either the Israeli or Arab culture, as I have multiple times, you know that they are thick in terms of family and relatives. There isn't a relative that they don't know. And they hang out together. And if you go for a meal, it's a three-hour meal. I'm just saying. So Mary would go down to Jerusalem regularly as a devout Jew. When you go down from Nazareth to Jerusalem, you stay with relatives. And the relatives you like to stay with are the ones that you like. You have some kind of commonality. Am I guessing that they're maybe not soulmates, but Mary is a devout lover of God. Elizabeth is a lover of God. So they probably love the hang. And when she hears that this is true about Elizabeth, she gets ready because she's going down to visit the relative, whether she was an aunt or a, a cousin or second cousin. Regardless of the relationship, she knows her, and that's where she's going. So she hurries. How far is it to Jerusalem? Well, if you look in the map, I'll show you. They, uh, it's about 90 miles. So if you ask, uh, well, how far is that? I'm, I would say, thanks for asking. It's from here 
to the international terminal at LAX. Now, for some of you, you say, wow, that's pretty close. Except you're walking. So how far can you walk a day? In those days, it was about 20 miles. Remember, they're wearing flip-flops. So uh, 20 miles a day. So we're talking four and a half days to get there. Uh, it's also not safe to travel as a woman alone. So she's got to talk to some friends or relatives, or maybe it's Joseph. He's not mentioned in the story. He's not important right now. <laughs> I love how scripture says, nope, you don't have anything. And, and Zachariah is not going to be important in this. This is almost a Mother's Day message because it's about Mary and it's about Elizabeth and it's about the babies that they're carrying and, and remember Zachariah is dumb anyway he can't speak so he's out of the picture so they she's heads down she travels the distance and when they get there there's this great encounter that happens let me just read uh, this again when she, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, all things break loose. She says, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears... The baby in my womb, leap for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So much right there. So wonderful. But I want to pause here and make sure that we're all on the bus here together. I've done this a few years. And I know that when we get into Christmas time, there's two different audiences that are hesitant to get on the bus. One is, a, it's a Christian audience, but it's an audience that says, you know, this fanciful Christmas stuff. The angels showed up here. The angels showed up there. She had a baby. She had a baby. Christians that believe that Jesus died for their sins and everything, they kind of, without thinking of it, dismiss this as being fanciful. You with me? It's kind of like, ah, oh, that's a nice story. You know, leprechauns and all of that. I love that kind of stuff, you know. And then there's people that are similar, only I would call them not yet believers. Notice I didn't say non-believers. I think that's pretty negative. I just like to think of people as, especially atheists, as not yet believers. So, but that group, not that that would be you today, but that group also says, this is fanciful stuff. This is the part of Christianity I just, I don't know what to do with. Because nowadays, as moderners, we know that this kind of stuff doesn't happen, don't we? And if it doesn't make sense to my brain, and if I can't measure it in a test tube, it just doesn't happen. Those people back then 
They believed in this kind of stuff. So they wrote about it and thought about it, so forth. I want to make sure that we're all on the bus. So what I want you to see in this story is Mary is shocked when Gabriel says you're going to have a baby. Mary doesn't say, oh, yeah, I love this kind of stuff. She's shocked. She says, I, it can't happen. I, I have not known a man. It's, it, I'm a virgin. This can't happen. My point is, she was just as smart as you are. Right? And then Zechariah knew this can't happen. My wife doesn't have that season in her month anymore. She's too old. This doesn't happen. He was also intelligent. So what we're talking about here is not fairies and leprechauns and click your heels and just say there's no place like home. We're talking about something that nitty-gritty physically happened and of course it doesn't happen regularly because Jesus doesn't come to this planet regularly the incarnation doesn't happen regularly this is a miracle and that's the point that the problem in the story is me do I believe it or not you with me that's the problem. Now, why is this important that we all get on the bus? Here's why. And particularly Christians who make this part of the story fanciful is that if we make this fanciful, we'll make everything else in our Christianity fanciful. And we'll create this dualism in our faith that says, well, when I go to church, I get real spiritual. I love the sing. I love that song. I love the oh yeah, I love this. And then I live my other life over here in business, my other life as a married man, my other life as a family. And they're not connected. This is nitty, this is earthy. I love the conversation between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, these great myth writers, Narnia, uh, Lord of the Rings. C.S. Lewis is an atheist. Tolkien is a devout Catholic Christian. And they walk is Addison's pathway outside Oxford. Uh, well, outside Madeline College in Oxford. And Lewis says, I don't know Tolkien. I don't know what he called him. J.R.R. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of other all the Greeks and the, and the Norse and all these different groups had their myths and gods showing up and gods coming down and this. And so how am I supposed to relate to this Christian story? And Tolkien says, ah, this is the myth that came true. All those other stories were just expressing the longing in humans this is the story that was actually true and that sunk in with Lewis then later Lewis writes and remember Lewis was a scholar in mythology and he says whatever you think about the Gospels they are not mythology 
They're not written in the genre of myth. They have nothing to do with myth, whether you even like it or not. It's, it's very earthy, quirky, common Greek telling what happened, and the writer actually believed it. So now, will you get on the bus? Will you say, okay, whatever, like if I'm not yet a believer, say, I, I don't know if I can believe this, but I think this is what they thought happened. That Jesus was really the Son of God, born of a virgin, and Mary and Elizabeth actually bore John and was also a, a, a pregnancy that was a miracle. Two different miracles, which makes this story so profound. When that will happen to you, then in your marriage, you expect Jesus now. He's not just coming into your heart. He's coming into your marriage. He's coming into your business. He's coming into your eating habits. He's coming into everything apart. So Jesus, his salvation begins to be a part of your life, the nitty-gritty, rather than this pie-in-the-sky kind of Christianity. Just nod your head that you understand what I'm saying. Otherwise, I could go on for another 20 minutes on this subject. So I'm obviously passionate about that. Let's move on to the bigger story, which is the birth of John the Baptist and, and, or the almost birth and the meeting of Jesus. So when Elizabeth comes in, I mean, Mary comes into the house, John the Baptist, who's six months in her womb, leaps he's already fulfilling his ministry because <laughs> he is going to be the forerunner that prepares the way for jesus and the anointing of the holy spirit is already on him and she though she's experienced quickening and probably movement in her womb there's this woohoo calisthenics going on inside of her because he hears the voice of Mary whoa it's already in him to be the one the, the bridegroom that's uh, excuse me the, the best man who's presenting the groom when he hears the voice and they're gonna be servants of God so these two cousins whatever their relationship is, my hunch is they end up not only here, but later on as Mary makes her pilgrimage to Jerusalem, as Jesus is growing up. We know about when Jesus was 12, going down to... They would see other relatives while they're there. John and Jesus would have encountered each other, I'm guessing, several different times. So when Jesus comes to get baptized, can we show that slide? Uh, when Jesus comes to get baptized, um, it, there's a few of these slides. You can imagine, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, that all things may be fulfilled. And he gets baptized. Is there another one of these? Or is that it? So, that's what the story is about, that that. It's all setting the stage for what is eventually going to happen for these two as adults. 
So in, in Elizabeth's prophetic greeting, the Holy Spirit has not been speaking for 400 years since the prophet Malachi. And now suddenly the Spirit is flowing. There's prophecy coming out of Elizabeth. John the Baptist is jumping for joy inside. And she says, Makarios, blessed is this woman, referring to Mary. Makarios, it's, it's kind of a religious word for us. Now, no one, if, if anyone greets you at work and says, blessed be you, or bless you, we all know, oh, that's code for they must be a Christian. Because everybody else, have a nice day, dude. Uh, but what it literally means is, most preachers will say it, it just means happy. Makarios is happy are you. But it's a little bit bigger than just happy, happy. It's happy in the sense of fulfilled. And it's not just as a recipient, but it has the implicit message of as the recipient of blessedness, you now live out the anointing that God has given you, the gift, the calling that God has given you. So it has that sense of it's coming from God, but now it's going out to others. So three times Elizabeth says, blessed are you. And I love the fact that she says, who has believed. That is Mary's role in this story. Who has believed. That's all she had to do. She didn't decide in heaven to send Gabriel. She didn't decide what Gabriel was going to say. And she had nothing to do with her pregnancy. That was all God. Her role was to believe. We know she believed by saying, let it be unto me as you have said. We know that she believed because she hurried and packed her bags to go down and visit Elizabeth. She believed. Now, why is that important? That's your line. You had nothing to do with the creation of the world. You had nothing to do with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You had nothing to do with your birth. And though your parents over and over said, you're special, you're so special. You're the center of the universe. And though everything we're over, so whatever you want, whatever you want, we'll do it for you. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. So that makes you a candidate today to make this Christmas the ultimate Christmas. When I was 18, a couple years ago, I, uh, <laughs> 2 a.m. in my bedroom, struggling with the existence of God, struggling with a friend who had asked me six months before that, Mark, are you a Christian? And I just, oh, what a question. Uh, struggling with all the wrong things I was doing in my life. I cried out to God. December 21st, 1969. And that's all I did. I think I said something like, whoever you are, let's do this thing. <laughs> That was, that was the amount of faith I had. And guess what happened? The big 
God showed up. You know, it's, it's like a fisherman going out fishing, and all he is is in a little dinghy. And all he's got is a little uh, five-pound test fish, fishing wire. And, and suddenly, this massive blue whale jumps into the boat. That's what salvation is like. You just believe. So if you're a sinner here today, you're such a good candidate. <laughs> if if, if you're, you're not really very religious or you already know, your wife already knows what a creep you are, <laughs> you're such a good candidate for this big whale of grace that wants to plop into your boat. And all you have to do is, okay, I believe. So now, let's come to the final part. Mary's Magnificat. So there's two parts to the Magnificat. One is specific to Mary, and one is generally. Now, who is Mary? Mary has become a lot in the church today. And, um, and even, that's why we call it the Magnificat of Mary. Like, she did something amazing but the Magnificat is about God. It's just her line that she spoke. So let me tell you who Mary is and who she isn't. And if, if, I don't, if you have a, a certain religious background, I don't mean to offend you at all, but I think it's important for us to know what Scripture says and what Scripture doesn't say. So Mary is called by Elizabeth the, mo the mother of my Lord. Wow, heavy, heavy statement. The church wrestled with this in the early church years, the first three, four hundred years, to figure how, what, what, what happened. Did Jesus gradually become the Son of God? Was he born deity? How did this? And so they made this statement that Jesus, that Mary is the mother of God, to just kind of say it. She gave birth to a child who is both human and divine. And so that, I believe, she is the mother of my Lord. So that makes her special. And John, the beloved, who's one of the disciples, not John the Baptist, actually, at the command of Jesus, took her on as his mother. And when he moved to Ephesus in Turkey, she moved with him. That's, and she had an important role of just like, Dude, you raised Jesus? What was that like? Could talk to me about that. So that's who she is. Amazing. But who she isn't. Um, the church has said many things about Mary. And uh, make sure that I use the right language here. Um, So one of the things is uh, the Immaculate Conception, and, and which would, would say that she didn't have, well, that, that she was sinless, that she herself was sinless, because the church struggled with the idea that Jesus would be born by a sinful woman. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that she was a normal person like you and me. Why is that important? I'm telling you, little buddy, that there's a chance for you. 
for God to use you. The other thing that the church thought was that she was a perpetual virgin. And the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches that she had children. And, and even the Gospels talk about uh, his brothers coming to, to bring him back. And, and the one who wrote the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. S same mother, different father. Think about that one. And the assumption of Mary. That was most recently um, bonafide in 1950 by one of the popes that she was caught up and she never died now why would the church invent these things about her being sinless about her being perpetually a virgin never having relations and actually not dying it's Greek influence that penetrated the church in Greek thought the soul and the spirit, good, body, bad. The spirit, good, sex, bad. The spirit, good, earthly things, bad. Heaven, good, bodily things, bad. So when we think of Mary, we had to do away with all the things that had to do with that. But in Hebrew thought, human was how God made us that there will never be a time that we are without bodies that we're going to have bodies in heaven you get a new body thank God <laughs> that in this life our sexuality it's not bad that's how God made you know it's like God can you please leave the room <laughs> Um, my wife and I no this is how God made you it's just outside of marriage that's wrong but your sexuality is how God made you do you understand and death is a part of our existence but we we will live again so all these things don't have to be made up regarding Mary so now this is the woman that speaks and in in her praise she begins to praise God first about herself and then a praise that involves everyone and she says my soul glorifies the Lord which is that word magnificat that's a Latin word but the Greek is very similar to that my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble, his humble, the humble state of his servant, from now on all generations will be called, will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done a great. So the reason she's blessed is not because of her, it's because of the mighty one and in, in what he's done, and so her soul glorifies, magnifies God, and you and I can magnify God in our own lives. We don't make God bigger; He's already pretty big but we can make him bigger in our hearts right we can give him more space my soul magnif my soul magnifies God and I love the fact that in her humble state this little word becomes a germ for what Jesus later teaches about the culture 
of the church. Blessed are those that are rich and amazing in their ego. No, blessed are the poor in their spirit. Blessed are the proud. No, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that uh, don't have any toleration for certain things. Take their stand and demand. And No, blessed are those who are merciful. It's this idea that there's this little small door called humility that God asks us to walk through as we discover the greatness of God. It's okay that your dinghy is so small. I love your little dinghy. Because it's not through your might that you're going to catch the whale of mercy of God. It's just his love for you. So in the final minutes, I need to move on to this uh, greater praise of Mary. And I call it the sandwich of mercy. She says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham, descendants forever. So at the beginning... And at the end, she mentions the mercy of God. So what is the mercy of God? A lot of times people will distinguish between grace and mercy. And, and mer it's like mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Uh, I wish it was that cut and dry. It's, it's, they're synonyms that lead into one another. And the point of mercy and grace is, baby, you don't deserve it. Like you can fool some of the people some of the time, but God knows you. He really knows, even knows what you think. He knows what you're thinking about what you're thinking about. And he loves you. He overlooks all of that because he loves you. And it's not because you're so cute. It's not so you're so amazing. It's not because if you were God, you would love you too. It's because... He's, he's love. And he gets back to that little thimble that I was talking about in the beginning. It's just, he loves you. So it starts with mercy and ends with mercy. But in between, I want you to see what uh, she says. She says, God is my savior. God has always been our savior, not just when Jesus came, Jesus enacted what is the heart of God is to be your Savior and to my, my Savior. But notice, he brings ultimate justice. The, the bringing down of the proud and the raising up of the humble. This is ultimate justice. We live in the season. There has never been an era in the human history where everyone on the planet is calling, Justice! And every time I want to ask, Whose justice might that be? Because if you go back through history, well, actually, before you had the injustice done to you, you were unjust to them. Before that happened, you, they were unjust. It's just we as a human race have been unjust. 
And so this is ultimate justice. This is God's justice that he brings ultimately. And, and if we said, well, I, I can't be responsible for them, but I can be responsible for me. What, what should I do? And I would just make a suggestion <laughs> to go through the door of humility, of not demanding and not saying, well, if I were God, I would have just, I don't like the way God, you know, God should have done this. And I can't believe in a God who would do that. And I've just, because that kind of puts you in the role of judging God. But, but to humble yourself and say, do you need the love of God, little buddy? I think I do. Do you need the love of God? So, Mary becomes this vessel that she sticks around with Elizabeth for three months. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you like to just know one of the conversations those women have? Like these are rock stars. And they, uh, they have this, and I'm guessing Mary, just like maybe a good daughter, just takes care of Elizabeth until Elizabeth gives birth to John. And then she goes back. So there's this story in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in the Gospel of Luke, maybe I could have the band come out. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is having lunch with this Pharisee. And you've got to feel the tension right there. The Pharisee has invited Jesus in, and it's a table that's about 18 inches high, and they've got pillows, and they're reclining. And they lean on one elbow and they use the other hand uh, to, to eat. They never use their left hand uh, because their left hand, you know, know what they've been doing with their left hand. You know, it's just, so they always use their right hand and, and they lean on their left elbow until their left elbow falls asleep. And, and so Jesus' feet are out there and this woman comes busting in the door and, and she goes right to Jesus' feet and she's sobbing, she's crying, and she begins to let her tears hit Jesus' feet, and she lets her hair down. Now, that is no bueno. Uh, you know, only certain type of women do that publicly. And then she starts using her hair to wash Jesus' feet. Then she pulls out this perfume that she uses often when probably different clients come to visit her to make herself smell good and only she now is anointing Jesus' feet with it. Now, you're the Pharisee who has invited him in and you're the, whole, you're the elder of the church and you're just like, yikes! Jesus can't be the Messiah because he would know that this is a sinful woman. This should not be happening. This should not be happening right now in my house. But he doesn't say it. And Jesus reads his mind and says, tell me, Simon, uh, this woman, you know, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Not my cheek, but my feet, the lowest, dirtiest part of me. And when I came into your house, because I'm controversial, and you're afraid of what your friends might, you didn't give me the courtesy of a Middle Eastern kiss. This woman has not stopped pouring perfume on my feet 
and you didn't give me the courtesy of giving me a drop of oil when I came into your house to make me smell a little nicer. I have a question. Who loves God more? The person who is forgiven a little or the person who is forgiven much? And the Pharisee thinks, whoa, whoa, this is a hard calculus question. Divide by three, multiply by four, and carry the one. He says, I guess the person who's forgiven much. And Jesus says in the Greek, bingo. (laughs) Bingo. And that's why there's room for you my sinner friend. That's why there's room for you, my humble friend who doesn't deserve to be in the presence of religious people and good people because we're just little thimbles. And we start there and we never get a bigger vessel. We never become this amazing thing. We change and thank God we change, but it's always the mercy of God. And because it's the mercy of God, we become the extension of forgiveness and mercy to other people. Amen.